This morning's reading is from John chapter 20 and can be found on page 1089 of the Church Bibles. John chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Now there were some Gentiles among those who went to worship. And they came to Philip with a request. Sir, they said, we would see Jesus. And Father, this is our prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we may have eternal life through believing in his name. To your honor and glory. Amen. Please be seated. Excuse me as I sort myself out. Many of you will be thinking, who on earth is this person standing up in front of you? Um, You'll have missed the fact that I was introduced a few, a couple of months ago now, Um, And it's been my privilege to be here on placement 
as a trainee licensed lay minister under training at the Winchester School of Mission. And it's my last Sunday here with you. And Clive, in his wisdom, has given me the privilege of preaching on my last Sunday with you. So it's a bit of shoot from the hip and dash for the stairs. So on one level, it's a bit of a rush. But I do have a debrief with Clive tomorrow, so I won't get away with it. Um, And I come with a certain amount of trepidation, mostly because it's such a privilege to preach God's word. But partly, as an outsider, an outsider who's been made to feel very welcome, so thank you, but an outsider nonetheless, as I am a baptized Presbyterian, preaching to you Anglicans, though some of you may not be, a Whitchurchian in Basingstoke, and a Scotsman in deepest, darkest England. (laughs) But if I told you that despite my accent, I was not born in Scotland, and neither was my father, some of you may doubt. Most of you, I suspect, would take my word for it. But imagine instead a very different situation, that you're a middle-aged married man with two children. Your wife has had an affair, and as a result, she has a child. You had tried to be reconciled to her for many years, but she would not give up her man, and she would not accept that she'd done anything wrong. So reluctantly, you'd moved out. You'd left your children behind. You'd filed the papers. You'd become legally separated. But now, five years on, she comes and says she's made a mistake. She wants to be reconciled. How would you feel? It's everything you've longed and prayed for. But can you believe it? If you believe, you open yourself up to yet more hurt, yet more disappointment. But if you don't, you miss out on what you really, really want. This partly explains where Thomas was at that first Easter, when he was told that Jesus was unbelievably alive again. It is all he really wanted to hear. Could it be possible that the clock could be rolled back before that Thursday, before they'd all run away? It's a peculiar form of doubt when you really want to believe but cannot, for fear of being hurt all over again. This morning, I would like us to join Thomas on his journey from doubting disciple 
to worshipping apostle, from paralyzed follower to dynamic missionary. Tradition tells us that Thomas took the gospel east and founded the church in India. In reviewing this journey, I would like us to consider the causes of doubt, how we can deal with doubt, both our own and of those around us, and so not be stuck, but be able to move on from questions and demands for proof to active service of the Lord Jesus, our God. So let's start our journey. First, by remembering that these disciples had given the last three years of their lives to following Jesus, an itinerant preacher, miracle worker, healer, whom they had come to believe was God's Messiah, his anointed, the King. You may know that even our Queen is anointed at our coronation. And just so, Messiah in Jewish language is the same as Christos in Greek. Both mean the anointed one, the king. The king who would transform society, bring in a new order, throw out the Romans, and bring in a kingdom that would last forever. But that was last week. And this week... It's all gone wrong. Psychologically, the disciples were all bereft, stunned in a daze, still coming to terms with the destruction of all their hopes and dreams. And the stories from the women that they had heard that morning seemed nothing but hysterical ramblings. Those stories had not even begun to penetrate their misery and complete confusion. We must also remember that the disciples feared for their lives. After all, if the authorities had killed their master, there was every chance that they would be coming for the disciples very soon. We don't know why Thomas was not there that evening when Jesus turned up. Whatever the reason, Thomas wasn't there. He missed out because he was not in community with the disciples. Sometimes we are tempted to just be alone for a while or not to come to church this week or next. They won't miss me, you think. I won't miss anything. But in reality, most of the time, we just need to be there. We need to be with our fellow disciples. Thomas wasn't. Be careful. What is doubting? Doubt has many causes. And before we continue with Thomas's journey through from doubt to worship, I'd like us to review that concept of doubt for a few minutes. The command of Jesus to Thomas in verse 27 is to stop not believing, but be believing. So you could argue that, the, that doubt is the opposite of belief. 
the Greek word pistis, commonly translated as belief or faith, has a broader meaning than just intellectual assent to something that is true or real. A better translation is allegiance or commitment or trust. For example, if I say that I believe that the glass floor of the Pinnacle Tower in, in Portsmouth, sorry for those Pompeians, will bear my weight, it doesn't mean anything until I step onto it. That is faith. If you don't step, it's nothing but hot air. When Jesus calls Thomas to stop not believing but believe, he's actually demanding, stop wavering, prove your loyalty to me, commit yourself to me. This is why Thomas's response, my Lord and my God, is completely appropriate. He worshipped Jesus as God and bows down in allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. Faith is not holding a conviction despite the evidence, but making a commitment or pledge because of the evidence. It's an act of will which directs the way we live our lives. And also, John tells us, it is not a commitment for no purpose, but so that we may have life in his name, a life lived for Jesus. See verse 31. So, unbelief or doubt is to waver in one's commitment or allegiance, or to refuse to commit, or to reject a commitment to the object of our faith. The first two are reasonable questions, or even the first one. The latter two are sin. Why do people doubt? We haven't got time for all the reasons this morning, but here are a few thoughts and a few which are more or less relevant to us or to this passage. Ignorance. Some people don't believe because they just don't know. A lack of knowledge. And Thomas had missed out on meeting Jesus. He hadn't seen him. He hadn't experienced him face to face. But, on the other hand, he had received a report from reliable witnesses. So ignorance wasn't a real cause. You don't know me well enough to know where I was born, so you'll be justified in doubting my earlier story. And maybe you've never heard of Jesus, never taken in that he died on a Roman cross at a particular moment in history to pay the price so that you could be forgiven and be reconciled to God. That Jesus proved that he is God the judge who will come again one day by rising from the grave, from death, and that he lives now as our ultimate mediator with God. Jesus, who is God, made man, who lived among us. 
if you've never asked those questions, never investigated, there are plenty of opportunities, including the course of Why Bother with God in the Starbucks coming up. Take the opportunity. Seek the answers to why we are here and find the one who is all in all, the beginning and the end, who would draw us to himself. The most important question is the one that Jesus asked in Mark 8, 29. Who do you say that I am? Can you answer like Thomas? Ignorance is not always bliss. For those of you wondering where I and my father were born, well, I was born in Brazil, and my father was born in India. And if you want to know more, and how it came about, and how I got a Scottish accent, well, you'll have to speak to me afterwards. A classic reason for doubt is growing up, maturing. The teenage years and into our 20s is a time of establishing one's own identity, separate from our parents, separate from our home church. It is a normal in that time, especially if we go away to work or university, to be challenged about our faith. Do we really believe what we heard from our parents, what our home church taught us? Is it real when so many around us don't believe? The solution is not to be embarrassed about our questions, but to keep connected with those who are more mature, with those who have been there before, with others. Keep going to church. Keep studying the Bible. Find a group, a peer group if necessary, with whom you can study and work it out for yourself. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. My first job post-graduation was in London. It was there that I started to worship at St. Helens Bishopsgate. And while there, I learned in attending the Read Mark Learn groups how to properly study the Bible. And during that time, I put my youthful theology into order and learned to claim it for my own. A classic reason for doubt, in fact, a classic reason for not operating clearly at all, is sleep deprivation. We all need sleep, and most of us need more than we give ourselves. If we don't get enough, then life gets unbalanced and overwhelming. And in such circumstances, especially if we're young, we may not react well when challenged. We are called to be disciples. And part of that is being disciplined in our daily patterns, both of sleeping and eating, as well as studying and reading. Don't neglect looking after yourself. And it is quite possible that Thomas, along with the other disciples, 
had not slept well for many days. I suspect they didn't sleep well on Thursday night. And come Friday, they were still in a state of tumult. Sleep is important to us. Lack of sleep will help, will lead us to not thinking straight. But I suspect that in this case, the lack of sleep was the result of the trauma and not the cause. Contradictions and trauma. Sometimes we go through experiences which contradict all that we understand about God or we suffer some unimaginable event which causes us to doubt God's very existence. Sometimes such trauma makes us rethink what we believe about God. And I suspect this is where Thomas was. As I said earlier, Thomas and the other disciples believed that the Messiah would be, that Jesus would be the Messiah. But they believed that the Messiah would be a military ruler. And the cross forced them to a new understanding of what Jesus as the Messiah meant. Jesus himself said that his kingdom was not of this world. It wasn't just good news of God's rule and freedom for Jews from Romans. But God's rule and freedom for the whole of humanity from sin and suffering, from death and hell. Are you struggling with what God is doing in the world? In your life? What is it teaching you about God? About yourself? About your service of others? What is God teaching you? There are no easy answers in these circumstances. All we can do is to look to the Bible and what Jesus has promised. Including when Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation. But do not be troubled, for I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. We can look to the experiences of the people in the Bible and the history of lots of Christians in this church and throughout history who have been there through difficulties and trouble and held on when there was seemed every reason to let it go. So, hold on. Reach out. Because God will hold on to you. One other reason for doubt, and that is deliberate choice. All the previous causes I've covered are innocent in themselves. The devil may use them to lead us astray, but with proper responses, they can lead to a deepening of our faith rather than a challenge to it. But some people do not believe because they do not want to believe. 
they understand the consequences of faith. They understand the consequences of acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Master in their lives. They realize that they will require a change in the way they live, and they don't want to. Some, like Aldous Huxley, who wrote, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Are there not many like that this day? Sometimes that deliberate choice develops over time. It often comes from the seeming innocuous decisions which leads to habits and then ingrained behavior, which may then lead to a wandering away. Be careful of the choices you make. Maybe a lack of sleep means that you don't pray and read your Bible in the morning as much as you used to. Maybe your prayer life has started to dry up a bit. And maybe it's gone altogether. Maybe you decide to have a lie-in on a Sunday morning instead of going to church. And then it becomes most Sundays. And then... The guilt gives way to, I don't believe that anyway. Be careful of the allowances we give ourselves. But Thomas made a journey from doubting to worship. Back to Thomas. He, it seems, was a faithful wholehearted, but possibly melancholy or pessimistic person by nature. Especially if you look at his comments in John eleven sixteen. Here, Jesus is encouraging his disciples that they're going to go down to Judea. And Thomas's response is, let us all go, that we may die with him. Wonderful, isn't it? What an optimist. Maybe... He was a bit of an introvert, which may explain why when Sunday came, the day after the Sabbath, he'd had enough of people and needed to go process things by himself. He was struggling to come to terms with the new situation. And then, on his return, the disciples tell him that he had missed a meeting with Jesus. Imagine. Can't be, says Thomas. Not possible. Is that not a human reaction? John tells us in verse 31 that this story has been included that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. Surely the disciples' initial despair and lack of faith are proofs that Jesus really did die. That the disciples did not manufacture a story from their memories. Nothing but Jesus' physical resurrection can explain the change in these men's attitudes and lives. Nicky Gumbel tweeted recently, There are five reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 
And the third one he listed was transformed disciples. Please note that Thomas is introduced as one of the twelve in verse 24. So, in spite of his doubts and his questions, he was still a disciple. Deliberate unbelief is sin. But having honest questions about the faith, about Jesus, about how it all fits together, is not sin. It does not mean we're outside the community of faith. In fact, if you've never had any questions, I suggest that you've never really thought about it. Paul commands us in Philippians 2.12 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, remembering that it's God working in you. So we have the paradox. We have to work out what we believe, but God works it out in us. Take your responsibility. So what did Thomas do when faced with his doubts? Well, in reality, we're not actually told. But having been told by the other ten disciples of Jesus' appearances, Thomas has a week during which he undoubtedly did a lot of thinking. It would have been a very long week. He could not just ignore the stories that he'd heard. He would have mulled them over, thinking them through, trying to make sense of what he was being told, trying to remember what Jesus had told them, scouring the scriptures for some meaning in the confusion, especially after hearing from the disciples of from Emmaus, who had recounted their story of how Jesus had explained his death and resurrection from the whole of Scripture. Thomas prepared himself. He didn't abandon the other disciples. And I'm sure there were many conversations that week. The following Sunday, they were all together again. Don't cut yourself off if you've got questions. Engage with others. Study the Bible. Pray about it. Meditate on it. Spend time with God alone and with others. Work at it. That's what Thomas did. But what did Jesus do? Jesus, we are told, appeared again. This time, it seems to be primarily for Thomas's benefit. Jesus condescended to meet Thomas at the point of his need. He had heard the cry the previous week, a cry for evidence, a cry to be able to touch his master. And now Jesus speaks peace to the gathering and reaches out to Thomas. Look, Thomas, see my wounds. Look, Thomas, touch the nail marks. Draw near, Thomas. Put your hand 
in my side. Jesus does not abandon us to our doubts. If we truly seek him, he will be found. He gives us time sometimes to think. He doesn't rush us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't appear the next day to Thomas? Why did he wait a week? Maybe Thomas wasn't ready. Maybe Thomas had to do the thinking first before God was able to take him to the next level. Sometimes God just gives us the time and space to think. Let us learn to wait on God in our uncertainties. Maybe we're here to learn something and we're not yet ready for it. So, Thomas's reaction was overwhelming and wholehearted. My Lord and my God. This is the climax of John's gospel. The gospel which started in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, now has my Lord and my God. Come from general to the specific, from all to mine. This was not an expletive from Thomas, but a total submission to the reality of God in his presence. Thomas worshipped Jesus. And Jesus accepted that worship that was his due. We must not get over how radical this was for a devout Jew to worship another man as God. Peter and Paul, later in the Acts of the Apostles, refused the worship because they were not and are not God. But Jesus accepted that worship. Thomas's worship was a commitment to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John tells us that this story was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you commit to serving him as your Lord? When you pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, this is my prayer. Let it be so. Amen.